0: I'm just going to spend a little time uh, talking about. Uh, I want to give you some of these uh, thoughts from Ajahn Buddhadasa. So, uh, Buddhadasa was a Thai forest monk. Um, he died about. I think he died in the early 90s. So he was lived in the 20th century, um, and he he was somewhat of an iconoclast and kind of an outsider, maybe an outlier in Thai Buddhism. Uh, I think uh, my understanding is that when he was young, he was somewhat ostracized from the mainstream kind of Bangkok uh, monastic community because his views were so liberal, essentially. He was quite brilliant. and uh, His book on the uh, on mindfulness of breathing is a, is a classic, and he has a couple other classic books. And, but um, I believe it was 1967. He gave a series of lectures on uh, Buddhism and Christianity, and uh, it was published in a little sort of pamphlet. So it's not it's one of those things very hard to find. It it's, there's versions of it you might find you know on used on the internet. But when I was writing uh, One Breath at a Time, my first book, I found out about his work and I uh, naturally got in touch with his translator who has since become a, I don't know if I can call him a friend, but we've a colleague, uh, Santikaro Bhikkhu, who is actually no longer a Bhikkhu, he was a monk at the time. But he was uh, a translator for Buddhadasa and he was retranslating. These lectures, uh, as he wasn't satisfied with the original translation of them, so he actually gave me all those raw uh, translations, that, um, and and they really helped me with my attempts to um, talk about God uh, in a Buddhist context, and and. You know, generally speaking, particularly in Theravadan Buddhism, uh, there's the accepted notion that there's no god in in Buddhism. Um, There are gods, small g, quite a lot of them, showing up all the time in the text. uh, there's no god in the western sense uh, because obviously the Brahmanism it just didn't have that concept, the culture that the Buddha was in, didn't have that concept of sort of a, a creator god who was sort of the all-powerful, all, all powerful, sort of the, the one and only. Uh, Eddie, if you're familiar with Hinduism, you know that they have like a creator god and a sustainer god and a destroyer god. And Vishnu and Shiva and all those, Brahma. Um, that's not the right order to correlate those, but anyway. Um, so, um, so there's this problem from my viewpoint, which is, geez, I'm trying to write about the 12 steps, and they're talking about God, but all these Buddhists say there's no God, so what am I going to do? You know? um, so I, I came upon this material, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read a, a few excerpts And this this clearly is in the middle of something because it's referring back to something else. I'm not sure what. Not so important. It says, Something of equal importance to observe and understand is that every religion has something that can be called God, but that some religions talk about their God only in terms of Dharma language. Thus, it appears that those religions have no God, and so they are classified as non-theistic religions. Buddhism and Jainism are religions of this type. Another group of religions mostly uses easily understandable conventional language when talking about God, and so they are classified as theistic religions. Christianity, Hinduism, and Islam are examples of this type, obviously Judaism. Religions of this latter group have very profound things to say about God in terms of Dharma language, but they are hidden under the outer shell and form of those religions. So he's saying that Christianity teaches Dharma, but it's got this mythology uh, uh, that, that kind of covers over that core truth. So says, the classification of religions into two groups, non-theistic and theistic, is a superficial classification that does not touch the real essence or meaning of religion. We continue to do so, however, because most people are only able to understand things superficially, and thus are unable to penetrate to the heart of religion. He doesn't pull punches. <laughs> Consequently, many of them come to despise religion more and more, especially what is called God. Finally, some declare that they have no religion or are proud to be atheists. Now, this is you know, 1967, so, you know. Hello, Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. (laughs) Well, you know, the argument I've had with uh, some of my so-called atheist Buddhist friends is that there's a sort of lack of creativity to um, be an atheist, in my opinion as my daughter would say. <laughs> well, uh, uh, what I mean is that that um, clearly there are powers <laughs> greater than us. You know, I mean, you know, DNA, Big Bang, gravity. Oh, that reminds me, t- I don't have that piece, oh, I have a great piece on gravity as a higher power. Um, <laughs> But let, let me give you a little bit more of this. Um, he, so, Buddha Dasa says that there are four aspects. Uh, he, he, calls, he, he says, Dharma is the god of Buddhism, which is really where I got the subtitle for my book, Dharma God and the Path of Recovery. Dharma is the god of Buddhism. And he says we can distinguish four primary aspects of it one of the reasons I call God, It. One, nature itself is an aspect of God. The laws of nature. And then, it gets interesting. <laughs> the duty of humans according to the law of nature. And the fruits, for is the fruits that human beings receive according to the laws of nature. Now, not surprisingly if you know Theravada Buddhists this four these four aspects of what he's calling Dharma God correlate to the four noble truths nature itself correlates to the truth of suffering it's just the way things are the law of nature correlates to the cause of suffering that there's a process there's a there's a um, a uh, a logic to this. The duty, according to the law of nature, correlates to the third noble truth. And then the fruits – no, actually, I'm sorry, that correlates to the fourth noble truth that we, we need to follow the Eightfold Path. That's our responsibility to create good karma. And then the fourth one, the fruits, are the awakening. So the third noble truth says you know, that's, is the truth of the end of suffering. He says, "Nature is something that God created," in other words, is the will of God. <laughs> oh, I can't do all of this right now. I'll kill kill him, you, you with it. <laughs> uh. Okay, so the single word dharma covers all four of these aspects. Here it's easy to see that the second aspect of dharma, the law of nature, directly corresponds with God. So the law of karma is one of the laws of nature, cause and effect. And and that's, you know, where I, I think it was in the Baltimore Catechism that I was raised with where it said, God is everywhere and God knows everything. And I remember hearing that as a kid and thinking, imagining this, being with all these eyes and tentacles. It's almost like some kind of Tibetan demon, you know. But the law of karma is everywhere, and it knows everything. It's not... Because when we hear those words, we think of a being. It's hard for us to disconnect from these words being about being. One of the problems we have with the word God is that the word God is understood to be the name of someone. It's not. <laughs> it's the name of something. So, there's this power. It's like gravity is everywhere on Earth. Right? You can't get away from gravity. The law of karma, as far as we know, operates everywhere. You can't hide from it, you know. It, like. He knows when you're sleeping, it's a lot like Santa Claus, he knows when you're awake. You know, knows if you've been good or bad, so be good for goodness sake. It's, that's the law of karma that's being described in that song, you know. So. <laughs> but this is the thing that, as addicts, we're trying to defeat. I mean, humans try to defeat the law of karma, generally but addicts especially, because what we want to do is to be able to create a continuous state of pleasant intoxication and have no negative results from it. That's against the law of karma. The uh, law of karma says if you are intoxicated, there will be intoxicated results, you know, physical, mental, emotional results. He has some really interesting, weird things in here, like uh, that you just almost have to be like a hardcore Buddhist believer to take in. There was another piece I was hoping to find, but I'm not sure I will find it. Um, All right, let's jump ahead here. Ah, Sorry. So... um, so, what, uh, uh, what he says then, he's talking about the passage in the Bible where it says, uh, 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 ask and you will be, uh, you shall receive. ask and you shall receive, knock and you will. It will be open. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, it's all this stuff, it's just, it sounds like, I, and, and he says, that's about action. It's not about just saying words. You have to ask. You have to knock. You have to. You, know, you have to sort of do all this stuff, and that's where he says we, we beseech the law of karma through our actions, not merely with words. Now, I th- you know uh, uh, the critical piece. So is to come back again to the intention, right? Because if our if those actions are driven by ego, self-seeking, by greed, hatred, and delusion, by any of those kind of destructive qualities, by by addictive, you know, pleasure-seeking, then they aren't going to bring about the positive results that we want. So it's... We have to again kind of go back to step three. That what we're trying to do is align our behavior, including, you know, in other words, our thoughts, words, and deeds, with the law of karma. And in Buddhist terms, the law of karma is essentially outlined in the Eightfold Path. So, what we're trying to do when we beseech the law of karma through our actions is beseech through acting on and living by the eightfold path. And part of that process then is turning it up turning over the results. Right? It's not that we're saying, okay, I want to get this, this, and this, so I'll just follow the eightfold path and then I'll get that. Mm-hmm. That's not how that, that's not how it works. The law of karma isn't this like simple, you know, formula that we can just plug into. And it's one of the things that's so difficult about it, right? Why, why our spiritual path is so difficult, because sometimes in order to live in harmony with the Dharma, we have to go through very challenging experiences, but we have to stay committed in order to get to the results. You know? um, You know, when I I, I was, this morning I was writing for my next book about uh, about, um, some of my early recovery. And, you know, when I look back on that, it was this rebuilding of my life. And it was taking on, essentially, challenges that I had avoided as a young person. Which meant it was difficult, you know. I, it wasn't like, oh, great, I'm sober now, I get everything I want. It it was this rebuilding, which started started like going back to almost being like, I mean, I did literally have to go back and start school from being a freshman in college at the age of 38, because I had never even finished high school. All I had was a GED. And, you know, and when I, I, I've shared this more than once, that, you know, when I was thinking about going to school and I said to my sponsor, yeah, but, you know, it's going to be like four years before I get a degree, and you know? I'll be in my 40s by then, <laughs> you know, and he said, well, in four years, you're going to be in your 40s, you, you know, do you want to have a degree when you get there, <laughs> or do you just want to continue to play your guitar in a bar, you know, and, you know, and you know, and, but that's, you know, it seemed like so burdensome. And it, you know, it was difficult. I wound up spending seven years in school, you know, because mm-hmm. I wound up getting, you know, going on to a graduate degree, but. Um, the, and then the whole, the work around relationships. I mean, I had to abandon my whole approach <laughs> such as it was, (laughs) to get involved in relationships. Well, of course, without alcohol, I had to start over anyway, but... Um, You know, the idea, fundamental idea uh, of, of of recovery, but also really of maturity, is delayed gratification, right? Delayed gratification means that right now, it ain't so pleasant, you know? Right now, I have to be able to tolerate something unpleasant. So it, it, there's just isn't this sort of oh, I'll just start meditating, and you know, go to some meetings, and everything's just going to be great. No, I mean, you got a you know, one way of talking uh, thinking about it is you got a lot of karma to burn off. You know, mm-hmm. You're gonna, you gotta and you got to go through those fires if you want to get there, and then you don't know what you're going to get at the end. Okay. You now when I finished graduate school, I mean I had, I, I don't know if okay, you know, you know if, if you know this part of my story but I went to graduate school thinking that I was going to publish a novel. Did I tell you that about this so some of you have heard it. but you know because when I I mean the weird you know the weird things that happen in life, you know, my freshman English teacher at Santa Monica College at the end of the semester said, did you ever think about being a writer? I mean, that was just so out of the blue, because that wasn't my intention at all. I'm going back to school. My intention was to be a therapist or something like a, like normal recovering people. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, being the dreamer that I am, it didn't take long before I bought into the idea that, yeah, I'm going to be a novelist and, I. To creative writing with this great teacher down there, Jim Crusoe, who was just amazing. And and, pe- and there were some people in this class; they were all adults in this class who, who were publishing their novels. And I, you know, I finished a novel and almost, you know, I had an agent, but I didn't. Have, then I got into graduate school and wrote another novel. And it's like, well, you know, and, and, and then my teachers were always like, "Well, this, you know, that's gonna, I can help you, you know." And I had, I was like, pretty, pretty embedded in the publishing world. I mean, I had all the connections I needed. <laughs> Just maybe they needed the novel that was going to be good enough. To. And I finished graduate school, and I hadn't published a novel. And I felt like really a failure. And it was really, it was rough. I mean, I was ten years sober. And I put seven years into going to school, and at a certain point I would like, decided this is what I'm going to do, and that's gonna, what's going to happen. I should have known right away. That that was like, that's not how the steps work, you know. And it took me a year to get a real, a real job. And because at a certain point I thought, well, let me just look in paper and see if there's anything that says writer. This was when people still looked in the paper to find <laughs> out. And there was a technical writer. So I, I became a technical writer. Not if you know anything about technical writing, it's not quite as romantic as noveling, <laughs> novel writing. Mm-hmm. So. <sighs> but it became a job, you know, and it was like, oh, uh, and, and I got, and it was like, wow, I was grateful, right? And I realized, oh, this is that thing, turning it over, right? I did the footwork, and these are the results that came, not the results that I intended. And then, you know, another, almost ten years later. I do publish a book, like, Buddhism and the 12th Steps, that wasn't my plan, you know, what What the heck is this, you know? So uh, that that aspect of, of acceptance and turning it over is always there, you know, no matter how much we think we're following the steps or following Buddhism and doing the right thing to get what we want, you know, it's like, you know, there's just such a natural tendency to think, well, I did everything right, how come, you know, I got this diagnosis? Or how come he left me? Or how come, you know, I didn't get that job? You know, it's not, it's not in the contract. A um, tricky, isn't it? <laughs> It's a tricky, tricky thing to live with. Um, And I, I, you know, I do have faith. um, And I, uh, you know, in some ways, you know, maybe I've just been very fortunate. Uh, I mean, I know I have been very fortunate. but, um, But I also feel that, you know, karma, you know, it does unfold in its in its ways. Um, and we you know, we have to uh I mean I mean we you know obviously we have to you know accept that unfolding and so that kinda brings me back to that critical piece of acceptance that's again, built into the steps. Certainly step three, many people understand step three to be about acceptance. That turning your will in your life over to the care of God means that you are going to do your best and then you're going to accept the results. And that just seems like such an important reference point for us that can get lost. And obviously the serenity prayer is largely about that. And if you read much of the mindfulness literature, there's a huge emphasis on acceptance as well. So I th- you know it, it clearly the, all these things are pointing to the fact that no matter what we do, if our relationship to the outcome is one of expectation, Demand that there's going to be suffering mm-hmm. so that it's and this is such a huge challenge to put your heart and soul into anything, whether it's a job or a relationship or you know a round of golf and then well you can't accept that but you know, <laughs> uh, but then, and then, uh, <laughs> But then to be able to let that go, let it go, I have, you know, it, it sort of doesn't make any sense, right? To be that devoted and learn to let go. But that that to me is the great challenge that uh, all spiritual teachings call upon us to to um, you know to live out. And I think it's it's why you know for one thing we practice meditation each day. Because meditation is a practice of acceptance in some fundamental way. When I sit down and say, "I'm just going to try to follow my breath, and I'm going to sit here for this period of time, and no matter what happens, I'm just going to do it," then I'm sitting there with the whole, you know, the uh, the whole catastrophe running through my mind and body, and I'm not trying to fix it. So I'm practicing acceptance on some fundamental level. I am making an effort to uh, bring about a desired result, but there's, I see that the desire for the result causes suffering. The effort if it's not connected to a desire for a result, doesn't cause suffering. So, again, if I can disconnect those, and and, and so meditation gives me this kind of laboratory for practicing this uh, relationship to my life, to my experience, that then I try to take out into the world. And then and it both gives me that laboratory, plus, you know, if I incorporate some contemplation and prayer in it, then I, I kind of plant reminders each morning. You know, it's like kind of reading your uh, daily meditations, or, or just however you approach your, your practice, that you plant certain reminders to let go, mm-hmm. to bring your best and to let go. Um. So, uh, you yeah, know, I find all of this quite paradoxical and quite challenging. And, and uh, you know, and the, certainly the process of moving from step three through step seven, moving from turning my world in my life over and then examining all this stuff and then trying to deal with it without thinking I get to control it. Wow, that's, you know, says what an order I can't go through with it. I mean, it's a huge, huge challenge. And... and uh, and I, I certainly haven't arrived at a place of, uh, you know, uh, handling it with grace <laughs> every day. Uh, but ag- again, that's one of the reasons why we, why we get together and listen to each other, why we practice, why we go to meetings, why we um, read about these things to to keep it. Fresh in our minds because it's so really antithetical even to sort of human instinct to strive for something without expectation or or with to even strive for to something and be able to accept uh, whatever happens out of that striving because obviously so much of uh, what we do in life is about controlling results. And it looks like the successful people, you know, are really good at this, right? um, But every time even I watch a movie or look at the story, the arc of some powerful person or some celebrity, I always see that place where they lose control, you know? Where well, they looked like they were so together. I mean, uh, you know, this woman this week, Ellen Scott, you know, just perfect example of some People are like, what? You know, just had, you know, I mean, t- you know, first of all, being Mick Jagger's, you know, girlfriend, which was like secondary, apparently. I was reading about her her talents today, and, you know, how gifted she was, and how loved she was, and, uh, you know, it just kind of go, like, uh... And her business was failing, you know. And obviously, she couldn't accept that. You know, I mean, I, that's not a judgment. I mean, like, I'm sure. That's horribly, you know, humiliating for her. But, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of the extreme of what we do, right? I'm not getting what I want. I can't handle the way things are. I'm going to check out, whether it's with heroin or alcohol or sex or, you know, uh, suicide, you know. So fundamentally, acceptance is, is right there as uh, something that, uh, you know, I don't think we can, we can survive without it, right? especially aging. And uh, now I'm really getting into bad topics, so that's <laughs> Well, so, um, as usual, I, I didn't do what I planned, but um, I didn't plan very well anyway, so it's good. <laughs> <laughs> We'll accept it. Yeah, thank you. Accept that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I'll just sort of end by saying that you know, I appreciate some of the things that were said tonight that really reflected the idea that what, certainly what I'm trying to pass on is a creative approach to the steps and to recovery, and that... that uh, and, and that idea that I said that, you know, atheism to me reflects a certain lack of creativity, and it's, I mean, that's kind of mean. But uh, but um, if we let ourselves get boxed in by language or someone else's, you know, AA curse, or anything else, then, you know, we need to, open our minds and use our imaginations you know this is for me I'm not trying to follow some you know this are the rules you know you're in the army now you know it's like no I'm not I'm not in some established religion or cult or something that's demanding that I behave in a certain way you know this is for me and this has to work for me if you're working somebody else's program at some point it's going to stop working for you it's got to become yours. And, that, and that's more than, you know, as much as I think I have it all figured out, and you can just read about it in my books, you know, uh, I, I don't think that's going to help you. You know, if, if, if that doesn't resonate for you, if that's not going to work for you, it's better if you just go, oh, well, he twisted it all up and made up his own version of it. I'm going to do my own. As long as it means... You know, that there's integrity and kindness and recovery. Non-addictive behavior. So let's just close with a brief contemplation. May each of us live in engagement and acceptance. May each of us find a way to express our wisdom, our love, our generosity, our creativity. May we be able to express these qualities in ways that heal ourselves and heal the world. May we be free from the destruction of addiction May may we share our recovery with all those we encounter. May our efforts to grow and to transform be of benefit to all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you very much and I thank you for your continued support of me through your Donna as well. I will see you next week. We have two more weeks to go.